Hey guys, are you thinking about starting your own podcast? If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me give you the details. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. of True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, joined by my bite-sized sass of a co-host, Winston the Cat. Every other week, we'll bring you a new story about a murder, disappearance, or serial killer with a special focus on cases from our hometown, the Pacific Northwest. I'm a young lawyer by day and a crazy cat lady and lover of true crime by night. Like most of you, I love discussing true crime cases and theories, and I've binged all of my favorite true crime podcasts. I finally decided to start my own podcast and research cases that interest me, especially those close to home. I chose my cat Winston to be my co-host. Well, maybe chose isn't the right word. Winston is my co-host because she absolutely loves talking with me. She's constantly stealing the attention on my Zoom calls, which, let's be honest, I appreciate because I hate them. And she's always chiming in with her two cents, whether I ask for it or not. We're glad you decided to check out our show. We hope you enjoy it. Just a heads up, this podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. The first case I have for you is the disappearance of Jennifer Kessie. Jennifer was born on May 20th, 1981 to Drew and Joyce Kessie. She has one younger brother named Logan. Her parents described their family as being close-knit, always keeping in contact with one another and communicating daily. She graduated from Vivian Gaither High School in Tampa, Florida. In 2003, Jennifer graduated from the University of Central Florida with a degree in finance. She secured a position as a financial analyst with Westgate Resorts in Ocoee, Florida at the age of 24. She purchased a condo near the Mall at Millennia in Orlando, approximately 21 minutes from her work. At this time, her parents lived in Bradenton, Florida, which was about an hour and 45 minutes away from Jennifer's condo. In January 2005, Jennifer began dating a man named Rob Allen. 
They met while Rob was in Orlando attending a trade show. The two continued a long-distance relationship as Rob lived in Fort Lauderdale, over three hours from Jennifer's condo in Orlando. The weekend prior to her disappearance in 2006, Jennifer and Rob had been on vacation in the Virgin Islands. When they returned to Florida, Jennifer spent the night at Rob's house before making the long drive to her work in Ocoee on January 23rd. Jennifer was last seen leaving her office around 6 p.m. on that same date. However, she did speak with her parents, brother, and boyfriend on the phone that night. Rob and Jennifer talked on the phone around 9.57 p.m. He is the last known person to have spoken with Jennifer. On the morning of January 24, 2006, Rob called Jennifer, but she didn't answer her phone. Jennifer always called or texted him before she left for work in the morning. Assuming she was on her way to work or was in a meeting, Rob wasn't immediately concerned. However, his concern grew throughout the day as his subsequent calls and texts went unanswered. Around the same time Rob was trying to get a hold of Jennifer, Jennifer's boss called her parents after she failed to show up for a business meeting. This was out of character for Jennifer, who was fairly responsible and would have let someone know if she was running late or wouldn't make it to the meeting. Jennifer's parents tried calling her, but their calls went straight to voicemail. They contacted Rob, who told them he had been unable to reach Jennifer as well. Jennifer's parents decided to go over to her apartment to see if she was there. Remember, at this time, they live about an hour and 45 minutes away from her, so they decided to call her apartment manager and ask if Jennifer's car was still in the parking lot. The manager informed them that Jennifer's Chevy Malibu was gone. When Jennifer's parents arrived at her apartment, nothing was out of place. There was no sign of forced entry or a struggle. The front door was locked, there was a damp towel on the floor, and Jennifer's purse, keys, and cell phone were all missing. At first glance, it looked like Jennifer had gotten ready for work that morning, then vanished somewhere between her apartment and the parking lot. The family called police, but the initial responding officers didn't take the disappearance seriously due to Jennifer's age and told her parents that she'd probably turn up. I know that that's the norm for the vast majority of cases, but it's never what families want to hear. And honestly, I can see how things become rocky between families of missing persons and police during an investigation. Rather than waste any time waiting for the police to take the case seriously, Jennifer's parents decide to begin printing flyers and passing them out around the areas surrounding her condo and along her route to work. At 9 p.m. on the evening of January 24th, a missing persons report was filed. A bolo was put out for Jennifer and her Chevy Malibu. Police checked Jennifer's ATM debit card activity and pinged her cell phone, but there was no response as her phone had been turned off. I couldn't find any information on what police were able to learn from Jennifer's debit card activity. There's no information provided on where it was last used, whether any money had recently been withdrawn or transferred, or if there's been any activity on the card since Jennifer disappeared in 2006. A few days later, on January 26th, a tip came into police regarding a possible sighting of Jennifer's car at the Huntington on the Green Complex. This complex is approximately a five-minute drive from Jennifer's condo. When officers responded, they found Jennifer's Chevy Malibu parked in the parking lot. Her car keys were not found with the vehicle. 
They conducted a search of the car and noted that the driver's seat had been moved into a position Jennifer wouldn't have kept it in, and there were valuables left in the car, ruling out a potential robbery. There was no blood, DNA, or hair found in the car, indicating to police that the car had been wiped down. Finding Jennifer's car didn't bring investigators any closer to finding Jennifer or figuring out what happened to her. While at the Huntington on the Green complex, investigators noticed there were surveillance cameras facing the parking lot area. When these videos were pulled, investigators thought they had found the most promising lead in finding Jennifer. Unfortunately, that would not be the case. The surveillance cameras captured an unknown driver pulling into a parking spot in Jennifer's car, waiting for several seconds, then exiting the car and walking out of the frame. This video was too grainy to be able to identify who the person was. The driver of the car was then captured walking through the parking lot toward the complex's pool, with the camera taking still shots every three seconds. But each time a still shot was captured, the unidentified person's face was perfectly obscured by the fence surrounding the pool. This is one of the most frustrating pieces of surveillance video I've ever come across. This person is most likely a person of interest, if not a full-blown suspect, but somehow he or she completely lucks out and is able to skirt detection. I have to wonder whether the person in the footage is familiar with the apartment complex or the surveillance system there and knew exactly how to time their steps to avoid their face being captured. The police sent the video to the FBI for assistance in identifying the person, but even the FBI was unable to provide an ID. The person in the video remains unidentified over 10 years later. Police won't even definitively state whether the person is male or female. Investigators brought out search dogs who were able to trace Jennifer's path from where her car was found to her condo. Unfortunately, her scent ended there. No evidence was found along this route. In the days following Jennifer's disappearance, several persons of interest were identified and questioned. The investigators first looked at Rob, given that he was Jennifer's current boyfriend. However, he had a solid alibi as he was in Fort Lauderdale, three hours away, which was later confirmed by phone records. He was also extremely cooperative with the investigation. He was interviewed numerous times, he took several polygraphs, and he gave DNA samples on more than one occasion. He was quickly ruled out as a person of interest, and Jennifer's family never thought he was involved with her disappearance. Investigators also looked at Jennifer's ex-boyfriend. In all my research, this man was only referred to as her ex-boyfriend. I couldn't find a name, alias, or any other identifying information for this man. Numerous so sources told police he was devastated after they broke up, and he was actually across the street from Jennifer's condo at the Blue Martini Bar on the night she was last seen. He appears to have been eliminated as a suspect, though it's not entirely clear why. This seems incredibly suspicious to me. He was across the street from her apartment on the night she was last seen, but somehow he gets ruled out as a suspect? I don't have any other information about what happened after he left the Blue Martini, or when he left, or where he went, or if he knew Jennifer lived in that area. To me, I don't have enough information to rule him out as a suspect in my mind despite what police say. Of course, he's denied any involvement in Jennifer's disappearance.
Police also looked at a married co-worker of Jennifer's who was pursuing her. Other co-workers stated he had an obsession with her and had recently been rejected by her. Investigators cleared this man after checking out his alibi. He was given a speeding ticket on the night of January 23rd and was taken into custody after an outburst with the arresting officer. He spent the night in jail. At the time of Jennifer's disappearance, there was a lot of construction going on at her condo complex. The condos were being converted from apartments and only about half the units were occupied. The main gates were left open or unlocked for construction access, meaning they were not secured and anyone could pass through them. There were no security cameras in the parking lot area. I really don't understand how this is possible in a post 9-11 world, especially if there was such unfettered access to the property. Was no one worried about theft or vandalism or any other crime? Jennifer told her parents in the weeks prior to her disappearance that she felt uneasy about the amount of workers that were around her condo. She told them she was creeped out by the men who stared at her and catcalled her. The workers quickly disappeared after Jennifer went missing. Some of them were undocumented and could not be traced through employment records. Investigators were able to track down some of the workers, but they didn't have any evidence or proof of their involvement with Jennifer's disappearance and they couldn't definitively rule them in or out as suspects. Wooded areas between the two condo complexes were searched, as well as other wooded areas nearby, but nothing was ever found. No Jennifer, no purse, no cell phone, and no car keys. In 2010, the Orlando PD stated that they had exhausted all credible leads, but they still considered the investigation active. In 2018, Jennifer's parents sued the Orlando PD in order to obtain their records and take over the investigation themselves. A judge ruled in their favor, and the Orlando PD turned over all of their files to the Kessie family. After hiring a private investigator to help sort through the police files, a tip from 2006 was discovered. A woman told police at the time that she witnessed something strange at Lake Fisher on the day Jennifer went missing. She told them a man in a pickup truck took out a six to eight foot piece of rolled up carpet and dumped it in the lake, watching while it sank. The family brought private cadaver dogs to search the area and they alerted, which prompted the Kessie family to request police conduct dive searches of the lake. In November, 2019, the Orange County Sheriff's Office conducted three separate dives of the area. However, these dives did not produce any evidence. According to the family's website, jennifercassie.com, there's no current law enforcement agency responsible for her case. The family has taken over the case themselves, and their private investigator is helping them follow up on various leads and sort through the police files. So what happened to Jennifer? When police found her car at the Huntington Complex, they thought it was a possible drug deal gone bad, given the area the complex is located in. But Jennifer's family quickly shut this theory down, telling police that Jennifer didn't have a history of drug use or other illegal activity. In the disappeared episode I watched for this case, Jennifer's dad, Drew, said he believes Jennifer was abducted and became a victim of human trafficking. There's no definitive evidence supporting this theory, but it's always a possibility. Jennifer's family also believe it's possible that construction workers who were around the complex at the time had something to do with her disappearance. 
They point to the strange timing of the workers leaving after Jennifer went missing, as well as the comments Jennifer made about feeling creeped out and uneasy by the men. They also know not all of the workers could be located for questioning, so this theory can never be completely ruled out in their minds. Jennifer Kessie has not been seen since January 23, 2006. If you have any information regarding her disappearance, please call the Kessie Family Tip Line at 941-201-4009. If you would like to learn more information about this case, please visit our website, truecrimecatlawyer.com, to see a list of sources for this episode. I'd also love to hear your thoughts and theories on what happened to Jennifer. You can find our contact information on our website, including our social media, or you can email truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. The next case I'm going to tell you about is the unsolved murder of Kelly Nolan. Kelly was a 22-year-old student at the University of Wisconsin in Whitewater, where she was majoring in communications. After finishing up the school year, Kelly moved to Madison, where she'd be spending her summer break. She subletted an apartment in the downtown area and worked several part-time jobs. The day before her disappearance, June 22nd, Kelly had a job interview in the morning. Then she planned to go out with her sister April and other friends later in the evening. Before discussing the events of Kelly's disappearance, I want to provide some context and background information about Kelly. She was one of four sisters raised by a single mother named Mary Jane. She attended high school in Wanakee, Wisconsin, where friends and classmates described her as a very pleasant and very good student. Her sister April described Kelly as fun-loving, creative, laid-back, and open-minded. In the years leading up to her disappearance, Kelly was convicted of two DUIs. She served 14 days in the Walworth County Jail after pleading guilty to a DUI as a second offense. When she disappeared, her driver's license had been suspended. Kelly had a few other run-ins with the law. For example, in 2004, her driver's license was revoked and she was ordered to complete an alcohol abuse assessment. Then, in June 2005, Kelly was cited for distracted driving after she caused a car accident. Kelly's father died in 2006, followed soon after by her stepmother in May of 2007. It was unclear from my research how much of an impact these two deaths had on Kelly outside of the normal grieving process. There didn't appear to be any reports of Kelly suffering from depression, thoughts of suicide, or other emotional issues following these deaths. However, we also know that mental health is incredibly stigmatized and a lot of people suffer in silence. So it's quite possible that she had these thoughts and feelings and just didn't let anyone know. As I previously mentioned, Kelly had made plans to go out with her sister April and some friends on the evening of June 23, 2007. At around 11.30 p.m., Kelly's friends decided to call it a night, but Kelly wasn't ready to go home and she split off from her group of friends and stayed in the downtown Madison area. According to April, she spoke with Kelly in the early morning hours of Saturday, June 24th. The content of that conversation has never been made public by April or police. The only information April has provided is that Kelly revealed her location to April. Because of this, it's impossible to know for sure what Kelly's mental state was, whether she was alone, whether she was intoxicated, or if she was in distress or in need of help. It's also unclear if Kelly simply mentioned her location in passing or if April asked Kelly where she was. 
It doesn't appear that anything about that conversation alarmed April, though again, to be clear, April hasn't elaborated on the content of that conversation to anyone except police. Kelly was formally reported missing on Sunday, June 25th, after her family was unable to get hold of her. They said it was extremely out of character for her to be out of touch with them. In the initial days after Kelly went missing, her family held candlelight vigils and offered a $10,000 reward for information regarding her whereabouts. Investigators were able to obtain surveillance video from the downtown area bars and restaurants. A man named Andrew came forward and told investigators he left the lava lounge with Kelly on the night she was last seen. He also told police he left Kelly with another man who claimed to know her. I didn't see any information on what whether Kelly confirmed that she actually knew this man when he dropped her off. According to investigators, Kelly remained in the downtown area for approximately one hour after leaving the 500 block of State Street near Gilman Street, which is near the area of the Lava Lounge. Police believe she either left the area voluntarily or by force with one or more people, and this was sometime around 2.30 a.m., Police have not provided any further information on who the other man was, whether he was seen with Kelly on video surveillance, or whether Kelly was actually with anyone around 2.30 a.m. to confirm their theory that she left with another person or persons. After pinging Kelly's cell phone, police organized a search of the Pittsburgh area, approximately 15 minutes from where Kelly was last seen in downtown Madison. The search began on July 9th at 4.30 a.m. with over 100 searchers from the FBI as well as police on horseback. At 8.45 a.m., police located the body of Kelly Nolan in the 4700 block of Schneider Drive, just northeast of the town of Oregon. Her body was found on a privately owned, densely wooded piece of property. Despite the ping to that area, Kelly's cell phone was not recovered with her body. I have so many questions about how Kelly got to this area. Assuming someone else took her to this area, were there no tire tracks found? From what I can tell based on Google Maps, this area is full of trees, so it seems like it'd be easy for someone to dump a body in the middle of the night or the early morning hours without anyone noticing. But it's hard for me to say whether this person was familiar with that area or if they just got lucky in finding the perfect location to leave Kelly's body. Police interviewed hundreds of people and reviewed hundreds of other persons of interest over the course of their investigation. They have stated all persons of interest have been investigated and eliminated. According to investigators, no one has risen to the level of a suspect in Kelly's murder. Police have, dis have declined to discuss any evidence related to the case. The coroner initially listed Kelly's cause of death as pending. However, in 2014, the cause of death was changed to homicidal violence, including blunt force trauma of the torso with fractures. To my knowledge, the surveillance videos obtained by police have never been released. It appears they were able to confirm the men with Kelly in the video and that they were ruled out as persons of interest and suspects. But if this is true, who killed Kelly? It's clear from the little bit of information we have from the autopsy report that investigators don't believe Kelly died as a result of an accident or suicide. The police have not provided any additional information on how Kelly got from the downtown area to where she was found, other than to say she either went willingly or by force. They haven't provided a possible motive and have held back a lot of information in the case.
There are a lot of things that frustrate me about this case. The first is how much information has been held back by investigators. Now, I get it. There's reasons that investigators hold back information all the time, but they haven't shown the public any of the surveillance video. They haven't released any information about the content of April's telephone call with Kelly, and they haven't released information on the state her body was found in or whether any additional evidence was found at the scene. At this point, what could be the harm in showing the surveillance video? It could lead them to additional tips or additional clues, and it could very well point them to Kelly's killer. Another thing that puzzles me about this case is Kelly's cell phone. If it was pinged and used to find Kelly's body, why wasn't it found with her body? Did the police ever find the phone and that information was just kept from the public? If they can ping her phone, they obviously can obtain her call and text history. I assume they've done this and just haven't released the information to the public. But again, if they have this information, it seems like it would lead them in a direction of a suspect. But they have said they've ruled everybody out and there are no suspects or persons of interest. Kelly's murder remains unsolved. If you have any information regarding Kelly's murder, please contact the Madison Area Crime Stoppers at 608-266-6014. If you would like to learn more information about this case, please visit our website, truecrimecatlawyer.com, to see a list of sources for this episode. I'd love to hear your thoughts and theories on what you think happened to Kelly. You can find our contact information on our website, including our social media, or you can email truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com, and you can find us on Twitter at truecrimecatlaw and on Instagram at truecrimecatlawyer. If you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at winstonthecatpdx. Thanks again for listening, and stay tuned for our next episode. I'm gonna go